Well, good morning. I'm so privileged to be with you. It's, uh, it's the first church that I was introduced to in the PCA. It's your church. But it wasn't in this location. And uh, when Chuck said that uh, uh, it was a bank, I was like, where are the money? <laughs> yes, indeed, it was the first uh, PCA pastor also that I was introduced to. And uh, he had a great, your pastor had a great impact on me. Um, when I first came in, uh, uh, it was 2006, and uh, he, he helped me to enlarge my view regarding the kingdom of God, not to see God in a box, right? In a, like we're, we're, a, we're a good denomination. We know that the closest to the Bible are Presbyterians, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that we are, God is only, God is a Presbyterian. We see that the kingdom of God is larger than that, and that was his great impact on me. And later on, my uh, my very well professor and uh, training pastor Sinclair Ferguson said to me once, "Reformed theology is never to be treated as an end, because it becomes a dead end. It is a means that should bring us on our knees and unpack the treasures of Christ from His revealed Word." So um, what I'm going to share with you today is from Psalm 2. If, uh, if you have your Bible to open it, or it's probably on the, uh, also on page 5 of the worship guide. Let me give you a quick view before I read the psalm and uh, pray. S- psalm 1 and 2, if you look at the book of Psalms, you will, you f- you will find out that Psalm 1 and 2 are the only two psalms without titles. So you jump to Psalm 3, you see there are titles all the way to Psalm 150. Perhaps because they are the title. You might be thinking I'm saying they are the title of the book of Psalms. It is true. But they're also the title of the whole Old Testament. And I wouldn't be exaggerating if I say they are the title of the whole Bible. And it's my favorite psalm. Psalm 1 speaks about the faithful covenant servant of God. And Psalm 2 shows us the kingdom of God. You have to bear in mind that there are terms used in this psalm to which you're inclined to jump directly to say the word son of God is used there, then it means what we probably learned growing up, what it means. But then to your surprise, you will see there's a lot of connection between creation and after the fall. And also there's a lot of connection with David who wrote the psalm at his his time and with the people of God who used to sing the psalm. But also connection to our days and to our life today. And hence the title, Our Call when we receive the announcement of the kingdom of God, when we see the nature of the kingdom of God. I may ask you a question. When you're in trouble, where you're facing difficulties, whether diseases or something, or if you live in the Middle East, you fill in the blank. What would come to mind first? I would be lying if I don't say that first thing come to mind, where are you, God? It's because we don't see the, the kingdom. It's not that visible as we see our president in the White House announcing something. We hear him. Where is our King Jesus 
seated at the right hand of God. He's ruling and reigning, but we don't see him. And we are in the midst of this misery. And then how can we see that God? And this is where the psalm really fits in. One more thing. Why is it connected to creation? It's because the first man who was called the son of God was Adam. If you read Luke in the genealogy of Christ, you will find the son of the son of the son of Adam, the son of God. Because the people of God understood that the one who bears the image of someone else is the son of that someone. My son bears my image. And so Adam was the first son of God. And as a consequence of that being the son of God, he was the king of the earth. He was given to rule over the earth. He was given the privilege to bring God's presence and ethos and character of his kingdom to the whole earth, to fill the earth with God's glory. And yet we know the story when he fell. And we know that in the midst of that, God's curse came on and said, Cursed is the earth because of you. And I will put enmity between you and the other seed. The seed of the serpent. But there's a promise. He will crush her head. But there's also a painful experience that the serpent will crush will hit his heel. That in context, when God called Abraham, he recalled that Genesis 3.15. And here when we see that, when the people of God sing Psalm 2, they remind themselves how God made David and his descendants to be kings in order to enable them to fulfill the very purpose for which Abraham was called to bring blessings to all nations in Genesis 12. Thus the psalm is royal. Whoever reads Psalm 2 with the eye of faith, especially among the Jews back then, and when I say Jews, I mean Old Testament Jews, the real Jews, could have realized that the hope of blessing, if you read the very last verse in the psalm, blessed are those who take refuge in him, is only found when people are subjected to the king that God placed in Israel, in Jerusalem. And so David is writing, and here's what he's writing, facing all the enemies around him, against him, breaking their ties with him. He writes it in a poetic language, a lot of poetry. Here's what he writes. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, 
lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. And that's the key. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Gracious Father, bless your word to our hearts. And make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you notice something in this text in our psalm, Psalm 2, like I said, it's, it's the title for the whole Bible. And you can say the title, The Kingdom of God, because the Bible is about the kingdom of God. If you look at the psalm, you will see that the way it's structured, the poetic language there, you know, poem has stanzas and things. I'm not going to get you into this. But the way it's structured, it's structured with like four voices in the psalm. Look with me. Voice number one are verses one through, th- through four. Uh, one through three, I'm sorry. It is the voice of the rebellious man. It's David echoing the rebellion of the nations, the rebellion of the kings. Our rebellious hearts, even though we're close to the king, we too have rebellious behavior. As C.S. Lewis once said, what is sin? In fact, it's, it's summed up in one sentence. Sin, sin is to say to God, leave me alone. And he said, then what is judgment? And C.S. Lewis responds and says, judgment is that God will tell you that day, I have left you alone. Go your way. And David is looking at those around him saying, God has placed me as king. I am the king of God. I am the son of God. And you are breaking your bonds with me and you are angry at my God and you are angry at his anointed, the king. And then comes the voice number two, which is verses four through six. I'll give you those four voices first and I'll go in details in them. It's the voice of the sovereign God. David is reflecting on the character of God in the midst of this misery or this distress that he's facing. And then this third voice in this psalm is is found in verse 7 through 9. It's the voice of the enthroned Messiah. And then lastly, verses 10 through 12 is the voice of the preacher. It's the voice of the evangelist. It's the voice of David telling kings about God. Kiss the Son, meaning submit to the Son, lest He be angry at you. And so, you're in this situation. Ah, If you're in the Middle East, you know what's going on in the Middle East. And probably you relaxed here when President Trump announced that Jerusalem is is actually only for the Jews. You probably have no idea what this would bring on the Middle Eastern people in the future. If it brings war, you're not going to be affected. But you, will be, you are already affected in other areas. You don't need to have bullets coming from Juarez to feel that you're affected. But you are affected by the bad culture that surrounds us. By the mentality of postmodernism. That makes us think that everything is possible and it's all spiritual. It's all mystical. You're surrounded to structure you the way you think actually, the way they want you to think. And hence is the war between you being in God's kingdom and being 
in the kingdom of man and struggling. And in that middle, you come to a point when you're facing difficulties. You borrow a lot from the culture ideas and you forget who God is. And then, of course, you will ask yourself, what is God doing? Where is God in this? When we had this in war in Syria, we have 2.5 million refugees in Lebanon. And the whole Lebanese population is 4 million. So do the math. We have 500,000 Palestinian refugees already. We have almost 200-300,000 Iraqi refugees. So we have about the size of the Lebanese population, refugees. And I hear people saying here, we don't want any more refugees to come to our country. On one hand, you're right. But on the other hand, what's the church business with that? You go to Lebanon and you see people coming to Christ like never before, under the Syrian regime, where the gospel was not allowed to be preached. You see people standing up in the midst of the community, and Islam is all about culture, and saying in front of everybody, I believe in this Jesus. He is my God. You want to kill me? I lost my whole family. I'm the last. I'm ready to die. And you would look at this story and feel you feel rebuked. How are we facing the enmity and the, the element that is actually affecting us and poisoning us? Culturally, it's more, it's harder than when you have physical war. The spiritual war is harder. And here's David knowing that it's both physical and spiritual. The kings around David want to bring him down. But also, he's looking at his spirituality. I am the son of that God who placed me here. What are you doing, Lord? Why do the nations rage? Why are they gathered together against God and His anointed? He did not know that he was also prophesying, perhaps. Because the way, the reason we know this psalm is actually for David is when we look at Acts chapter 4. When Peter echoed the psalm and said about Herod and the Roman Empire. Right? Pilate and Herod, they gathered together against the anointed, against the true Son of God, Jesus. And when Peter used that, why did he use it? What was in his prayer? He was asking for boldness to be that voice of evangelist like the psalmist here. To face that hardship with the preaching of the gospel that is stronger weapon than nuclear weapon. But he knew that this psalm, and he, he called it, he said David wrote in the psalm. And that's why we know this psalm is written by David. Otherwise we don't know. But we also know because he was surrounded by kings around him. To bring him down. To break the yoke, which means the walking with that king. And we often break our yoke. And Jesus said, take my yoke. Because it's very easy. No, we want the hardest way. But what is God doing? That's voice number two. The voice of the sovereign Lord. He who sits in the heavens is irritated, isn't he? Therefore, we should be irritated. Does that what it says? In verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He's not irritated. Why are we? War can rage against us. Diseases can come on us. 
Difficulties can face us. My cousin is almost losing his mother. It's a difficulty that he's facing. How can I comfort him? The only way to comfort someone is to remind him, God is in control. That's why we're reformed. Because Calvin thrilled to teach us that God's sovereignty comes first. And we said that in our prayer. There's no little one, little tiny hair from your hair will fall down without his permission. Why are you anxious? Why, David, are you anxious? Well, I know that my God sits in the heavens and I know that he laughs. Because they will be doing his will without knowing. Look at the story of Joseph. They sold him. Everybody did bad to Joseph. But at the end, God actually was the one orchestrating everything to save his people. Look at the death of Jesus. Everybody was against him. Everybody wanted to kill the Son of God. But they were doing God's will without knowing because if he did not die, you and I would not have been here with the hope. So even the evil things work together for good for those who love God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. But he speaks. He speaks in wrath. And when God spoke in wrath, he said, I will put my king on the holy hill of Zion. He is literally here. He is speaking of the cross of Jesus. Because this is where God literally expressed his wrath when Jesus cried out. That's what we were able to see. We were not able to see God's wrath. But we were able to see and read what those who saw Jesus saying, Why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? He is that Psalm 1, the faithful servant. He is the qualified one in Psalm chapter 1. Not David. We know that. And he was forsaken. That's a contradiction. But it is that contradiction, that mystery, that brought you to know that God is a father for you. And he loves you. He speaks in his wrath. As for me, I put my king on the holy hill of Zion. But then what's next? The third voice is the voice of the enthroned Messiah. How does the enthroned Messiah respond? That mean David back then. As for, what does he say? You look at verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations, your heritage, and the ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is echoing Second Samuel. If you remember the covenant that Nathan came to tell David, that from your descendant, God is saying, will come he who will be to God a son, and God will be to him a father. And this is the term son of God when we read in Luke, as I said in the beginning, referring to Adam, the term in itself when it stands alone, it does mean only king, because the pharaohs were called sons of God. It does not, it's not a reference to the second person of the Trinity. It's not a reference to the deity of Christ. Perhaps the more reference to the deity of Christ, indirect reference, is the term son of man. When Jesus echoes Daniel 7 every time he uses it. And read Matthew chapter 26. You will see that 
the, the, uh, uh, the, the Pharisees were accusing Jesus to hold him in a, accountable before Caesar. And they said, are you the son of God? Are you the king that would replace Herod? And Jesus did not deny it. But what made the high priest to actually to, to take out his garment and shred it was not the term son of God. It was when Jesus echoed to his ear that you will see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven, echoing Daniel 7. The Jews back then knew this is Jehovah riding the cloud. Jesus is saying, I am the God you worship in your temple. And for that reason, the only blasphemy in the Old Testament Judaism is to place yourself in the place of God. And that's why he cried out, blasphemy. But it wasn't the term son of God. Because David is, is called son of God here. And David is not the second person of the Trinity. He's not divine. But when this verse is attached to the second person of the Trinity, it gives a different meaning. What does it tell you? It tells you that God is in charge. In human being. Of humanity. It tells you that God who was king of the universe, became king of Israel, became king of the world in the human flesh. It tells you that no longer needing those leaders, even David himself, but the descendant of David is the one who will rule the universe. So have peace when you are facing those troubles. Of course David thought that it's his son Solomon. Because you know the story of Solomon. He was given the privilege to ask, Whatever you want, Solomon. And Solomon asked, actually, for wisdom. He said, God, give me wisdom to rule your people. And God said, I'll give you even more. And the queen of Sheba came and bowed down before that wisdom of Solomon, which was pointing to Jesus. But Solomon's kingdom, the scope of his kingdom, did not really expand over the whole world because the promise here is saying, Ask of me, and I shall give you the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Did that happen with Solomon? The scope of his kingdom was not that large. So that remained a prophecy about the future to take place. About the true son of God. You know, this is the second Sunday of the Epiphany. And I don't know, I chose to preach from this psalm because it's probably my favorite passage. I wanted to share it with you the first time. But there's something connected there. Think of Luke 7. When Jesus said something about John the Baptist, he asked, you know, John the Baptist sent two disciples, are you the one or we'll wait for him? And he said, go tell John what you have seen. Then he looked at his disciples and said, what you have seen in John? A prophet? More than a prophet, right? And he called him the greatest born among women. What would you interpret that? Why is John the Baptist the greatest? Now, we believe the line of prophets begin with Solomon, the first prophet, and ends with John the Baptist. With Samuel, I apologize. Samuel to John the Baptist. What's the connection there? If Samuel anointed King David... John the Baptist anointed the true Son of God. That's what made John the Baptist the greatest. It's not his character, it's not his office, although all are good. 
but it is to have the privilege to anoint the true Son of God as King of the universe in baptism. Where Christ himself said to John, John said, no, you are going to be baptized by me. And Christ said, let it be so in order to fulfill it. And John, looking at the Jordan River saying, all the sins of the people are being washed, are here, you're going to be polluted. And Jesus said, yes, John, that's exactly why I need to be baptized. I need to take on their sins and be polluted by their sins. So the baptism on the cross, I will give them my baptism, my righteousness. It's an exchange where only in Christ, only in that king, in subjection to that king, you will find peace if you take refuge. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. It's beautiful to be Christian because of Christ. It's beautiful to be Christian and it's the safest place to be Christian. Look at Paul. He never continued to speak of Jerusalem, Jerusalem meaning the city of peace. He got it when Jesus said it will be destroyed. He got it that the shift was from a city to a person and he was famous in his letters to use in Greek and Christos, in Christ. That peace that Christ will give, no one else can give, not as the world gives. Jerusalem cannot be the city of peace anymore. But the heavenly Jerusalem, where Jesus is indwelling and will bring with him, is the true peace that we are looking for and awaiting. But guess what? There is a promise there. God given Jesus a promise. God giving David a promise. And David himself is singing the song. And thinking, God will give me whatever I will ask. If not me, perhaps my son. Why? Why would David bank on God's promises? It's because in Genesis 3.15, God made a promise. And all over the Old Testament, you will see that promise being repeated and echoed. God did call Abraham not because Abraham was special, but because God wanted to continue and fulfill Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman. God called Israel and the Jews not because they are qualified. They are the least, the worst among people if you look at the Bible. But because God wanted to carry on his promise from the seed. And he, 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 called, he called Isaac, he called actually Jacob, Israel, and the sons of Jacob. And he narrowed his covenant with the, with the tribe of Judah. And then all the way to the household of David. That even the northern kingdoms were considered like pagans. Because it was all about the coming of Jesus. And David knew that God's promises are all yes, yay, and amen. You know, I have a son who's four years old. He's going to turn five. This church was the first church I was introduced to. And I love your pastor. We're always in contact. Somehow on Facebook, when I travel to Calvin's church, he always put his comments. I really love your pastor. And if I tell your pastor that if one day you're facing something, I'm going to put my son so he would die to save you. Don't you think I'm a liar? Can anybody of you put his son, his child? I even love my cousin to death. 
But I can't imagine if the house is burning and my cousin is there and my son is there, the first to save is my son. Sorry, cousin. But if I tell my cousin the first to save is you, and my son would cry out, Daddy, Daddy, why are you forsaking me? I would say, because I want to save my cousin. Because I love him. If I fulfill this promise, which is impossible, then all my promises are true. When God made a promise in Genesis 3.15, thousands of years and on time, he gave up his son. Paul writes it in Romans 8. How does he not give us with him everything? Because at the very moment where his only son cried out, Papa, why have you forsaken me? It was to say back to him for the good of salvation of humanity that I have, I must forsake you, son. But because he poured himself, God gave him a promise. Ask of me and I shall give you the world to be yours because you are the qualified son that I was looking for, the one I sent. Where is this promise fulfilled? Where is it fulfilled? That brings us to the last portion of this text, which is the voice of the preacher, of the evangelist. Our response to the kingdom of God. Our call with this regard. Because if you see all what I said by faith, then you feel that you are at urgency to respond with evangelism, to tell the world that Jesus is Lord. Right? Where was this promise fulfilled? But to do it from your own energetic power you will be sad and you can accomplish nothing. This promise was fulfilled if you remember in Acts chapter 1 when you read Jesus telling his disciples, wait for the promise from the Father to be received. It was the day of Pentecost. It was when the Son of God came out of death before the Father saying, here's the nails, here's everything in me that was fulfilled. It is finished, Father. Now, You've promised me to give me the world, my possession, since Adam lost this privilege. Let us pour out our spirit in this people. And through them, we will rule the world. Yes, God became, the Son of God became attached to Him as as the second person of the Trinity. God is in charge. But God wants to be that king through you. And not by passing. We are Calvinists. We believe in God's sovereignty. But God's sovereignty is dangerous if you detached yourself from it. When the centurion had his coin in his pocket at the cross of Jesus, his coin said in Latin, Divini Filios, the Son of God. And it was about Octavius, the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Because Julius Caesar was considered God and Octavius was considered the son of God. And he, the world was promised peace and prosperity and justice. And Rome was basically the whole world, running the whole world. And that's why Psalm 2 is tied to Jesus' time because it was the whole world with the city of Jerusalem, two kings, Herod and Pilate, representing the, universe of the, 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 the universal power of Rome. Raging against God. Who else? The whole world is against God in this case. And the centurion knew that Octavius did not bring justice and peace, but he looked at that one dying on the cross and he said, 
Hmm. No, this was not the Son of God. This is truly the Son of God. The voice, the final voice, the voice, the voice of the preacher is David speaking back. Looked at his distress, looked at God in the midst of it as sovereign, looked at the enthroned Messiah as he has promised the world to be God's and kingdom. Then he responded, now therefore, now therefore, all kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry. When you have too many refugees coming your way. The only way to interpret this psalm is to look at. We as church. We're not politicians. We're not ready to take decisions. We have people in the office. We're paying them money. We pray for them. They have to take these decisions. But if God allow Muslims to come your way. At that very moment, the very response is to say, God is bringing them to my neighborhood. How will I go and tell them, be wise, serve the Lord, kiss Jesus, submit yourself to him, because that's the only safety you can receive. God is bringing them to you. Would you be that rebellious heart in, in, the, in the very first voice? No, I don't want your yoke, Jesus. I have my own political standard, whether Republican or Democrat. No, that comes second. The kingdom of God comes first. And your call is to go out and tell not just Muslims, Mexicans, friends, families, bow your knee to Jesus. Your safety is only in Christ. For God did not spare his only son but he loved us that much. Will he not give us with him everything? Father in heaven, we thank you for this promise that you fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We thank you that all your promises are now yes and amen in Jesus. The true Israel, the true king, the true son. We look for him, Lord. We have our characters like the very first voice in the song. The character of the rebellious heart. We often say, Lord, leave us alone. We want to act without you. And this is sin. Oh, how much we fear that day when the Lord will return and say, Depart from me, I know you not. Oh, we have taken out, casted out demons by your name. And he will say, I know you not. You do not look like me. Have mercy on us and forgive us. And make us like your son Jesus. This is our goal. To look like him. To act like him. To speak like him. But we know we can do nothing without your Holy Spirit. Thank you for sending your spirit. Thank you Jesus for fulfilling this promise. Speaking to the Father to send us your spirit. Because through your spirit and by your spirit. You will be king through us. And so we ask you. Make us participate in this kingdom. Not just as pastors and preachers, but even as musicians, as lawyers, as bankers, whatever vocation you called us to, to be in, even as salesmen. To reflect that image, that very image that was restored in us by God, by you, Father. Bless us richly. Bless this church. 
and make it shining in the midst of darkness of the culture and of postmodernism. We lift up your name and we rejoice in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. <laughs>